0: Welcome to Movie
1: Maniacs, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. Welcome aboard. My name is Chuck Curry. Alongside my co-host, Kenny B, for another edition of Movie Maniacs heard weekly on the internet, also heard on WO out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and also, Ken,
0: on Cool 98.5 WXPM in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania.
1: Lots to talk about on this week's segment, our top ten listed in the second half of this program. Interesting subject, Ken, our top ten most disappointing either movies, television, or moments in movies, or television, or anything in general that relates to the world of movies and TV the uh coming off the super bowl week a lot to talk about here with some of the trailers that aired during the broadcast one in specific which got a lot of buzz which we'll talk about in a few moments uh how are you ken and what do you think about the game in
0: general i am doing fine i loved the outcome of the game of course and uh i think those people are crying about holding calls uh, you know i i don't know what a catch is in the nfl anymore because if it was not a catch on the Miles Sanders catch and fumble for a touchdown, I don't know how it was a catch on the uh, on the sideline later in the game uh, But for Dallas Goddard. But hey, the game's played the way it is, and Patrick Mahomes is showing people he may end up being the GOAT before it's all done.
1: I gotta tell you, uh, the one thing that I thought was extremely positive about that game is one, it was very competitive, it was entertaining, it moved... Uh, 106 million people watched, which was the highest rated Super Bowl in the last six years. As I, me and Mike talk about all the time in this program when the Super Bowl airs, we've been doing this program for a long time, is that it is probably the last beacon of collective experience that this country has as a whole. Uh, I don't remember too many events where over 100 million people actually watched. Believe it or not, uh, in 1980, and we've talked about this before on the broadcast, Uh, I think it was 80, the last episode of MASH, actually 106 million viewers tuned in to that episode. When you look at the culture as a whole, Ken, and think about how one-third of the populace here in the United States could watch one program. I get a Super Bowl, I get a collective experience for a sporting event, but for a television show to have 105 people watch, which was MASH last episode uh, back In I think 1980 is almost hard to fathom when you think of all the divisiveness, the social media, the streaming, so many programming entities uh, on—sort of a head-scratching number, no? It it is,
0: and of course I, you know, we've we've had 106 million for some of my comedy shows, but
1: yeah, that was uh, that was. A slight line around uh, uh, out the door to the left or the right,
0: correct? Right? That, that, that's right. But uh, one thing about the social experience, there's a viral TikTok out there of a plane flight on Sunday, and the plane had the Super Bowl available on the screens, and every screen in the plane on the back of every seat set to the Super Bowl, except for one guy who's watching a rerun of Hitch, and uh, there are people that are calling for his head yes
1: uh, he's got it's still a free country he's got a right to write that, write, watch hitch if he wants to as I was saying some of the trailers that ran during the Super Bowl we talked about this last week was it worth paying 7 million dollars for a 30 second spot the longer trailers are on the internet and they basically tell you if you want to watch a longer trailer go online but uh, there were The Flash uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny Guardians of the Galaxy 3 Fast and the Furious 10 Scream 6 a movie called Air with Ben Affleck and uh, uh Matt Damon, which is a story of uh, the foundation of Nike when one of the executives in this trailer, played by Matt Damon, uh, gets a whim to build a shoe line around a guy who's never played in the NBA as of yet, and that was the player Michael Jordan, one of the greatest corporate decisions in the history of this country. I mean, you're talking about a billion-dollar-plus uh, decision, which is still as strong as ever to this day. That actually was a pretty good trailer uh you get a chance to see that trailer to air i
0: i did not i saw a lot of the commercials didn't see that one and uh you know kind kind of timely since lebron uh, set the scoring record last week and now he can claim he's the greatest ever and not air jordan well I I,
1: I I i don't agree with that but i mean what a career and and this trailer does look good it's more of a character driven interesting story fact-based story uh i hope it does well when it hits Theaters. Now, the one trailer that did get uh, tremendous, and I mean tremendous buzz, probably the most buzz I've seen in a trailer in a quite uh, a bit was Warner Brothers DC's The Flash, where people are losing their uh, perennial minds uh, after seeing Michael Keaton back uh, as Batman with that line reading, yeah, I'm Batman. I mean, just an awesome trailer. Uh, trailer uh, it's big in scope it brings back not only Michael Keaton as Batman but uh, uh, Ben Affleck as Batman you get two flashes and you get General Zod back from uh, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel what's interesting about this story is there's no Superman is that uh, in, in this in this story the, the Barry Allen uh, the Flash has wiped out all metahumans although it does have Karag Zerrell which is uh, super Girl, by all accounts, this movie's tested through the roof and preview test screenings. It has been delayed due to the behavior of Ezra Miller, but uh, I got to tell you, Ken, this trailer was good enough where it felt like people would sit in a sleeping bag outside a theater for 48 hours to get in. I mean, that's the kind of buzz this has created, which I think is good for The DC brand, and also good for theaters because this, as I predict, will be the biggest hit this summer. Now, in terms of Guardians of the Galaxy Three, movie looks like a lot of fun. Fast and the Furious Ten, bombastic, but brings back just about everybody into the fold. The uh, budget of this film reportedly well over three hundred million dollars, and you could see it based on the trailer. All this star talent that they get back, Uh, none of these people are going to work cheap. Scream Six which comes out in March uh, or April, I, I forget. Uh, looks really good. It has Ghostface in New York City. I, I think that was well worth the $7 because that was, also has created a lot of buzz on this film. As for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, I, I, I say on myself after, after watching. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm going to be there opening weekend. I want to see this film. But in retrospect... And I'm not talking about ageism, but the reality is: is it really worth doing another Indiana Jones film with an 80 year old Harrison Ford? I'm mixed on that. I want to see it, but do I think it's it's almost the same as, if you think about it? Like, would you bring back an aging Sean Connery if he was 80 years old to play Bond, or or Roger Moore at that point in his in his life, upper 70s? I just I just don't know. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see, one, the final product that's directed by James Mangold, who's an excellent director. He did Logan with with Hugh Jackman, probably the greatest R-rated superhero movie ever made. So uh, I have high hopes. I just think it's a difficult juggling act to take an iconic character, bring him back all this action-oriented stuff at the age of 80. But uh, I know we've talked about this on the show
0: what do, you, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think it would work if the plot was he's uh, excavating through a pile of laundry to try to find Miss Millie's dentures in the nursing home. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, but, um, the thing that if you listen to everything you've just, every trailer you've just mentioned is either yeah. a sequel or it's yeah, characters true. we've seen before. And, um, yeah. you know, that's that's what we, that's what we rail against. And the, this whole franchise thing is so lucrative that we end up with an eighty-year-old, um, you know, Harrison Ford, and if it have been if they had the script before he died, that would have worked for it. I think they would have done an eighty-year-old Sean Connery. As, as, but here, here, here's here's the thing, uh, and, and you, you you've invested in different things,
1: and, and you might be willing to take some chances, but the the reality is. When they run these trailers for Super Bowls and they spend $7 million and they're making these massive investments, studios, really, like anything else, they are hesitant uh, to put $200 million plus into a movie project if they don't feel secure that they're going to get a return on their investment. That's why they're so reluctant and gun-shy about original properties because movies, as we stated, one of the big issues in the industry beside the post-COVID uh, gear or, or mentality of, 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 of the streaming model is the reality of movie production has become more expensive than ever. It's hard to produce what they call a popcorn film now for less than $150 million. And even that's considered low ball. I mean, most of these projects are $200 million plus now. And studios don't want to write that check out unless it is a sequel. Uh, a known character, uh, something they feel that uh, is an easy, much easier sell. So, um, you know, it's not like in the 70s where you could produce a movie for five or ten million dollars and make a hundred million dollars at the box office, thats us like say ten or twenty fold. You know, spending two hundred million dollars at the box office, these, mo- these studios hoping the movie can do, you know, six hundred to eight hundred million dollars worldwide. You're talking about, uh, if they get a three fold, uh, they, they they feel like they're hitting a home run, so uh, it's a very different animal. Movies are much much more expensive now in 2023 than they ever have been. So um, that that has been restrictive on the creative the creative process, I think, in the industry. And as I speak about to Mike all the time, how many scripts can are out there that are probably really good, but they're character driven, and um, they'll never get the financing, which is
0: really sad. Yeah, it is. And I I think a lot of people don't realize, because you look at, oh, here's this big company, you know, they must have the money to do this, that every script is separately financed. So you you go out, you don't go out and raise money as XYZ uh, studios to produce 20 films. You go out to raise, you go out as XYZ studios to raise money for film one and for film two and for film three. And so... People, you know, even though the studio can survive with a mix of good and bad, the people that are investing in movies, they want them all to be good because they're investing typically in a specific movie, not in the the studio overall. I mean, you you go back and you think about some of the independent
1: uh, studios that uh, not all have made it. Remember the company Orion, which... uh, uh, Was the, the distributor and financer of, of the movie Robocop. They distributed and produced many a movie and then ultimately failed because they, they, they hit a few too many losers than than winners. So even the biggest of studios, I mean, Warner Brothers is not exactly in the best of shape. I mean, they're in reorganization and, 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 ver- and, and trying to come to an understanding of what to do with the, the theatrical model and the streaming model. Uh, some people say that they're just being reorganized to eventually... Be sold. Uh, CEO denies that aspect. But uh, it is high stakes poker. It is the biggest of all big uh, businesses. And um, it's a very, uh, very, very uh, changing industry uh, that nobody completely has a handle on. And I'll give you another example. There was an interview that uh, got online that was that, that basically a camera and microphone caught, and uh, it was at uh, it was at some sort of—I uh, uh, don't know if it was a festival—but Tom, Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg uh, had had a meet with, were, were, were had met uh, in front of a lot of people, and the camera caught Steven Spielberg saying to Tom Cruise that Tom, you're a top gun maverick, saved. The Industry and the theatrical model, thank you very much. Uh, and that was an eye opener for people because Spielberg, when he spoke to Cruz, was not supposed to be meant for on camera, but it was a very sincere moment. I think Steven Spielberg completely uh, be- believed that. But here's the guy who's had the greatest bio in our generation of movie making, Steven Spielberg, saying to Tom Cruise, uh, you know, post COVID, this was last week. Thank you very much for Maverick because it saved the theatrical model. Did you see that
0: and have thoughts on that? I, I didn't see it, but I mean, uh, thoughts on it are that, you know, he's probably right because it's the only movie that wasn't one of these superhero things that everybody knew ahead of time was going to be this huge blockbuster that became one. It was a movie that, frankly, totally outperformed what people expected, which is <laughs> what gives people the hope. But, you know, what's happening these days in, in the industry is that. With the private, the the independent studios, they're producing commodities. They know that if they produce a movie, they will get Netflix or somebody to pay them X dollars for it, and that is their target. They're they're they are producing a product when a commodity price. They know what margin they need, so they know what they can spend on it. And it's um, for them. They're no longer, for the most part, taking that risk of. Um, my big fat Greek wedding that we're going to spend a little bit of money on a movie and hope it becomes a huge hit because they're happy to limit their upside by selling the movie to a streamer.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And I did, do think, as I stated, I think the biggest change in the uh, the gambling of movie making is like I said, there's no more 10 no more 20 folds on the investment. Uh, if they get a three fold, uh, it almost becomes uh sort of an, aber- an aberration. I mean, you know, movies that were produced in the 70s for $5 million that wound up doing well over $100 million at the box office, that's, that's a 20-fold. That, that day is over. Uh, you know, Fast and the Furious 10 is a $300 million production. So if they hit a billion dollars worldwide, that's a three-fold. Uh, they're, 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 um, their margin of error uh, has shrunk substantially and their window of of massive profits is, is, is just a different model. It's a different, different, uh, it's a different animal. Let's box off, uh, bounce into what happened over the weekend at the box office. Super Bowl weekend, which is historically slower. Studios are, are very reluctant to release new product. There was one, Magic Mike, The Last Dance, uh, which is originally intended to go straight to HBO Max, but they decided, uh, to, uh, make the commitment to do everything theatrical. 8.6 million. Uh, reviews were somewhat split, but, uh, public, um, uh, survey uh, was very solid for the to the film. It'll be interesting to see if it has legs in the next few weeks. Titanic, the re-release, which was mostly released re-released in 3D. I don't get it. Uh, and also IMAX. That's cool. 6.8, which is a solid number for a re-release. Now, this weekend, uh, Ken in theaters, which opens uh, this weekend. And Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, uh, which is tracking uh, at a four-day weekend, because it's President's Day weekend, around $120 million, $280 million tracking, worldwide opening. That would be a very good number. This is a big uh, release for Marvel, which sort of launches their Phase 5. It's hard to believe uh, they've been making these Marvel movies now since uh, the original Iron Man. What a run. Uh, this movie's getting uh, on Rotten Tomatoes score about 54% positive, which is uh, one of the lower scores for a Marvel movie, but there's more than enough, from what I read, entertainment value I think to please the uh, the, the masses. So uh, this is a big uh, kickoff to uh, I would say the spring season. I know we're only in February, but the way the weather's behaving here on the Northeast, it certainly feels like uh, late March. But Ant-Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania uh, is going to be a, a, a big do a big number this weekend at the uh, box office.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that actually maybe get a uh, benefit from the weather because I'm imagining, especially in the Northeast there and places you know, like Pennsylvania that have big hills rather than mountains, that it's actually the weather is has been so warm that people aren't thinking about skiing. And you know skiing is the one thing that can kill the President's Day weekend. But this year, I, I think people might actually decide to go see uh, uh, Ant-Man instead.
1: If I, being a business owner, I, I, I do see more people uh, than than ever in the last couple of years have go, are going out, getting out. Uh, people people are tired of I don't want to say tired of COVID, but they're exhausted of COVID and they've gotten it behind them. They want to go out and they want to do things. Hopefully, uh, going to the movies is is part of our culture, and people start going into that habit because I think you know as we've said many times in the last couple of years on this program. Uh, people are creatures of habit, and they get in the habits of doing things, and they get in the habits of not doing things. And once you're in the habit of not going to the movies, it takes some time to get back into the habit. And what they need is something to want to see, and a good product line. I think we're getting closer to a better product line uh, going into this summer season. I just want to point out this week uh, a, a passing Rocker Welch passed away at the age of 82. I think primarily known for. Well, the one film she's known for was a 1961 movie called One one Million Years B.C., didn't have a lot of dialogue, but listen, Raquel Walsh was a beautiful woman, was a massive sex symbol in the 1960s. A lot of people don't like that word in 2023 for a woman to be a sex symbol, but uh, put her on the map. She was known for a very sort of a divisive personality, I think, behind the scenes. But, uh, you know, sad passing, Rocka Welch who passes at the age of uh, 82. So, what's on her, Ken?
0: Yeah, well, the most successful poster before Farrah Fawcett. And, uh, I mean, she couldn't act, but, uh, you know, there were two great things about Raquel Welch. I'm not going to say what they are. Um, Well, left and right, I guess we could say. Um, But, no, but I think we saw. Are they going
1: to say Cannibal running, Cannibal. Run one and two. She was in
0: those movies with Burt Reynolds. Right. I, I think we saw her she limited. A, we saw her um, limited appeal because her uh, her career didn't last that long beyond ste- sex symbol, symbol status. But one thing on your last thought about the movies, and you would know this because of your you know the movie theater that you spend a lot of time at. I think what we've lost and or we're losing as a generation passes is that generation that would show up in a movie theater, look at the board and decide what to see because they decided they're going it's thursday afternoon they're going to a movie i don't think people anymore have that habit if i'm going to a movie regardless these days they go to a movie to see a movie and that is a big change
1: uh it is it is a big change uh, and, and change is never difficult and change is not easy to autocorrect. so we'll see what happens So movie news of interest this is a story i, I was reading um we're talking about will smith Last week, and will he recover from that Oscar slap? I mean, they, they, they already have greenlit a Bad Boys 4, and the Martin Lawrence coming back with the same directors of the last installment. But uh, he had a, uh, a commitment to do a sequel to I Am Legend, and it appears that is moving forward now in a stronger way. Michael B. Jordan will be the co-star Michael B. Jordan of, the, of Creed fame. It's got a lot of, uh, a lot of pop- popularity. Evidently, this sequel will follow the ending of the alternative version of I Am Legend, which will now be canon, meaning the Blu-ray and DVD version of I Am Legend, which came out in 2007, had the character of Robert Neville, played by Will Smith, living. In the theatrical version, the character dies. So they're going to go with the canon uh, uh, of the Will Smith, Robert Neville, character living at the end of the dvd and blu-ray version uh and this movie will take a take place a few decades after the last one i thought will smith was awesome in i am legend yeah i didn't like the cgi in the second half but i think a lot of the film works the set design was outstanding His performance was terrific uh i'd like to see this I, I love the concept it's an end of the world post-apocalyptic movie Add Michael B. Jordan to the mix. It gives the movie a ton of star power. Uh, and I think that's really what Will Smith could use a, co- uh, a co-star who uh, has, is not toxic, let's put it that way, uh, to get him back on track. I, I don't root ill will on anybody. I, you know, I think Will Smith has paid a very hairy price. I, I think he's had, had an of attrition, has done a lot of soul searching off a horrendous moment his life, yeah, he, he certainly made bad judgment. He did. I mean, going up on stage in front of millions of people and slapping somebody, uh, one, it's a crime. Uh, it's just, it's, it's ethically, morally wrong. Uh, but, you know, we all have our personal demons to, to, to battle through, Ken, and uh, I hope eventually uh, he rights a ship and, and gets his uh, career back.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, it, it, that thing affects my willingness or desire to see him in a movie absolutely zero. It doesn't matter at all to me.
1: And, and I think a lot of people will, will, uh, will feel that way. Not everybody, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Other news of interest. Filming has just gotten underway on Todd Phillips' sequel to Joker. Walking Phoenix will be back as Arthur Fleck. Joker. And they just released a still picture of Lady Gaga, who co-stars in this movie. She will play Hall, Holly Quinn. Uh, there will be musical elements to this movie, hence why they probably brought in Lady Gaga. I love Joker. I mean, there's a couple buddies of mine... On Facebook, one guy posted that, why are they doing the sequel? I thought The Joker is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I don't know what he's talking about. I love that movie. Most people did. Uh, it did about a billion dollars worldwide uh, as a hard R-rated movie. I thought that was a fascinating performance by Joaquin Phoenix. Won the Oscar for Best Picture. It's in DC's standalone uh, universe, meaning it will not, his this, this Joker will not be intertwined with other uh, superhero characters specifically. Anything in the D.C.U. I mean, ultimately, I would like to see Robert Pattons' Batman meet this Joker. I think that would be really cool. Whether it'll happen, I don't know. But uh, I, uh, I I I the uh, the Joker, and I look very much f- forward to this uh, sequel.
0: And, and it should be good. Uh, Joker is one of those great characters, and uh, you know, I, I think there should be high hopes for it.
1: <clears throat> but uh, that will come out, I believe, uh, next. Summer. let's do this um, this this week in, uh, in, in movie history this is a really interesting one a lot of, a lot of uh, the total right here February 14 1991 Silence of the Lambs comes out in theaters becomes a big hit a lot of backstory to this uh, movie directed by Jonathan The movie goes on 10 to win five major Oscars the five major Oscars which is not easy to do best. Actress, best actor, best director, best pitcher, best adopted screenplay. It was based on a, new, a novel, a popular novel, by uh, Thomas Harris. Uh, Jonathan Demme, initially, even though Jodie Foster won, the, won an Oscar the year before for the movie The Accused, she wanted to play the role of Clarice Darling, but he was hesitant. Went to Michelle Pfeiffer first. She winds up turning it down because she felt it was too graphic. Uh, goes to Meg Ryan. She turns it down for the same reason. They go back to Jodie Force and she gets the role. Evidently, they initially approach Sean Connery about uh, the possibility of playing Hannibal Lecter. Uh, he turns it down. They go back to uh, Anthony Hopkins. He takes the role, reads the script, first ten pages, says, this is the best part I've ever read. Iconic, obviously. Now, here's another caveat to this. Gene Hackman had an option on this novel. And if he pursued it, was going to play the FBI agent, of uh, Clarice Starr, Bob boss, played by Scott Glenn in this movie. I think that would have been a different movie if Gene Hackman was involved, simply because I think Scott Glenn was, although a very well-respected actor, not as powerful on screen as, as Gene Hackman's star power. Uh, but ultimately, some of the best casting in the history of film, and like The Exorcist back in 1973, showed... That more raw R-rated psychological horror can really be effective for a mass audience. Like The Exorcist, this one radiated with the mass public and became a big-sized hit. And Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, Ken has become a pop culture icon in movie lore. Thoughts on this movie?
0: I I cannot see, and I'm, I was a huge Meg Ryan fan at the time. Um, I cannot see Meg Ryan ever playing that role. Um, I, I only see Meg playing the Ditzy type character Pfeiffer maybe but you know it, it was they ended up with perfect casting and that's the that was the key. I think that helped make it. Uh, I think that uh, Hopkins brought something to it that I don't think Connery would have and uh, you know I think they, they were lucky that they ended up with such great casting because despite you know they take, taking people's faces off putting them on your own and things like that. It is very much a character-driven mystery movie, and uh, those guys and women filled out the characters.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, and, and the thing about Anthony Hopkins, he won the Oscar for Best Actor. That year he beat out Nick Nolte, who was uh, nominated for The Prince of Tides*. I love that performance also. Very different, obviously, type of movies. But Anthony Hopkins, I think, is on screen for 17 minutes. Feels like he's on the screen for the entire two-hour uh Running time, but when he speaks in that movie, it's just so you, you're you're literally on every word that he's saying. It's it's just uh, it's just a hypnotic, uh, powerful just line. His line readings in that movie and the way he played that character uh, was uh, just so memorable. Um, ter- terrific movie with a great, really two great performances. Uh, one by Anthony Hopkins, the other by. Uh, Jody Forster. Before we get into our main topics of some of our more disappointing moments uh, in the history of TV and movies, anything else on your mind you want to expand on?
0: All I'm gonna say is that back back to Hopkins. There, the fact is he played it in such a low key way for somebody whose mind must be going a hundred miles a minute. I think that was the th- thing that made that role because he was always quiet and measured with his speech but you knew beneath this guy was a monster, but he's probably the monster for movies that we love the most.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because <coughs> he said in interviews that he sort of uh, fashioned his line readings like uh, Hal in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I th- it's always an interesting uh, uh, mindset to uh, have. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, a very repeatable movie, Silence of the Lambs, came out this week in... Uh, In 1991, President's Day weekend, actually, it uh, came out. Okay, let's bounce into our topic. I think this is a really good topic because there's a lot to chew on. I I could talk about this topic probably for a few hours, but we have about 25 minutes to do this. Uh, Top 10 uh, most disappointing moments in either TV or movies. Either the movie, the TV show itself, or a a simple moment. I'm going to start, Ken. My number 10, uh, True Blood which ran from 2008 to 2014. I was a big fan. I remember the opening uh, theme. My daughter, who was a l- little kid, a baby at the time, and then one, two, three, four, five, just to dance, always danced to the opening music of that show. Now, it was never a perfect show because creatively, I think it, it had flaws, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love the characters uh, on on this On this, uh, program. But I gotta tell you, the last episode, which, which aired August 24th, 2014, I thought was a complete misfire and sort of marred the overall series a little for me. I just sat there, I remember watching it going, what are they doing? This is not, uh, what the show before it came. Nothing was resolved. The, 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 all the loose ends were, were still loose. Uh, it just felt so disjointed, so, mis-targeted, and I really thoroughly disliked the last episode of True Blood, so that was my number 10. Number nine, massive disappointment for me, Wonder Woman 1984, okay? Once COVID hit, Warner Brothers' HBO made the decision not to put this movie uh, in theaters. It wasn't a few theaters, but mostly was streamed on HBO Max, so on Christmas Day, me, my wife and daughter, watch it. I'm watching, and I love the original Wonder Woman. I thought it was awesome. Gal Gadot was awesome. Everything about that movie, I thoroughly loved. Uh, the chemistry with Chris Pine and Gal Gadot was awesome. So, watching the sequel, and I'm watching, like, the first 45 minutes, Ken, and I'm like, this movie's not, not so hot. It's got to get better, right? It's got to get better. in The second half, it's, it's all going to come together, and it never does. And the movie just bogs down in ridiculous silliness, and a tone almost equal to Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin, and what an absolute bomb, and a movie that laid a complete egg, despite the fact Gal Gadot's still good as Wonder Woman. But everything in this story, the direction by Patty Jenkins, the tone, the script, is juvenile at best, and I gotta tell you, I sat on the couch so utterly disappointed and deflated and depressed on Christmas Day. So number nine, Wonder Woman 1984. Number eight, here's a good one, Ken. Me and my father... In 1980, went to the Kingsway Movie Theater on a Friday afternoon, opening day, to see Irwin Allen's When Time Ran Out, which starred Paul Newman, Jacqueline Bissette, uh William Holden, Red Buttons, Ernest Borgnine, James Franciscus, and it was supposed to be an end-of-the-world movie, which really turns out to be a volcano eruption in Hawaii. This movie was a complete dud, despite the fact that I love Paul Newman, and I sat there with my father, and this movie, when it ended, it sort of ended, like, it just ended out of nowhere. And it's not overly exciting. It's got a couple good sequences, but it's badly scripted, weakly directed, badly acted. And I sat there with my father, and we said, how in the world could a guy, Erwin Allen, could do no wrong with the beside adventure of 72 and the towering inferno of 74, and then go down a down road of one misfire after the other with the Swarm, and then... Uh, beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and then sort of a culmination of a stock that went to 100, back to zero, with when time ran out in 1980. So that's my number eight. Number seven, Disappointment, Staying Alive, 1983, which was the Sylvester Stallone co-written, directed sequel to Saturday Night Fever, was picks up five years after the events in Saturday Night Fever. Uh, it just felt like Tony Manero was in a different world. This was not the same character Uh, from Saturday Fever. Yes, Travolta was in tremendous shape, probably the best physical shape of his career, but these long montages of him on Broadway, especially the last act of this movie, which was a bad Broadway production, uh, it does have a little bit merit. Travolta is likable. I do like some aspects of it, but overall, this was a very different, far-removed movie of the terrificness of cyanide uh, fever, and this was a misfire. Despite the fact that it had Travolta back looking good and Sylvester Stallone uh, coming to direct this project, staying alive from '83 is a massive disappointment. So my number seven, <laughs> my number six, I'm gonna go TV. There was a Stephen King-based uh, mini-series called Under the Dome, which aired in 2013 on CBS CV- on CBS which I really dug. And it was devised to be, a, I think, an eight-episode or ten-episode miniseries. And I thought it was really cool. Uh, Mike Vogel, who was in Poseidon, Dean Norris, led the cast about a mysterious dome that envelops a small town in Maine. And it was really interesting, and it was good TV. And then, because it became a ratings hit, CBS and producers said, let's do more. So they did two, two more seasons. And the two seasons... That, that, that they did. Now, my disappointment is not that 2013, which I loved, it was 2014 and 15. The two, the two seasons that they followed up were dreadful. The writing was like they went into a bathroom and wrote the script on a napkin. It was just terrible. The ideas were completely dry. Uh, it was awful, awful, awful TV. And that was a massive disappointment. One of my head scratching moments in TV for me. How bad those two follow up seasons were to, to Under the Dome, which I liked a lot. So that's my 10 through 6, Ken.
0: All right. I, I avoided the obvious ones. Like I was disappointed that Rose didn't allow Jack onto that floating gymnasium floor, but because uh, we've talked <laughs> about that before. <clears throat> but I, I'm going to start with a, a casting decision, and that is the, okay. cas- the casting of Mamma Mia, because I've, I've complained about this before. I'm one of these people. I'm a math-based person, and I know that the mother in Mamma Mia, and so therefore her friends as well, are about 40 years old because she was in her late teens when she had her daughter, who is now 20. So therefore, you don't cast people who are 50. And also, it's something that I will complain about many times when it comes to to movie musicals, and I think it, it killed, it, the thing that kills a lot of movie musicals, not this one, because they they, it was ABBA music, so you didn't need great singers, and they certainly didn't have great singers for the most part. But I hate the fact that we always cast Hollywood names in musicals rather than people who have experience in, mu- in musical theater. So both the, the big star aspect and also the fact that the ages were off, I never could get my mind over the fact that well, yeah, she's Meryl Streep's fifty, so she had this kid when she was thirty. Would her mother really disown her for being pregnant at thirty? I don't think so. Do you give it that much deep thought? huh? Uh, believe it or not, all all the I way never through. I thought of it that way. It's
1: interesting, though,
0: having seen it on on stage and you know with a forty year old playing the role. Yeah, I did think of it that way. Okay. Uh, second one is because it was made. Not the casting. Well, they lost some of the cast, but let's face it, Caddyshack Two killed what could have been a great franchise because it got absolutely too silly, especially with the miniature golf on the uh, golf course. It was a great. It could have been a great franchise, but it's another one of those ones that shows when you have to change some of the original cast, you change the tenor of the movie. It's not the same movie anymore. I agree with you
1: wholeheartedly. I, I saw that in the theater. The movie was terrible, and I thought Dan Aykroyd uh, was absolutely dreadful in that uh, that movie. That character he plays, playing a riff on the Bill Murray character from the original, it's just awful. You know, and I'm I'm not
0: sure for my number uh, eight here. I'm not sure who should have played Gotti, but I know it wasn't John Travolta. Oh, and the, the the 2018 Gotti, I had real trouble with with Travolta. I guess I still see him as Vinnie Barbarino, it was a good movie, but I would have liked to see somebody with a little bit, you know, the, the person playing Gotti has to have had mob kind of chops while having, you know, the, the movie star kind of quality. And I don't know who would have done it, but maybe it's because I was still thinking of how well Gandolfini played uh, in, this, in The Sopranos that... I wanted more out of the lead and Gotti, and I wasn't a big fan of Travolta and that, so I had trouble with the movie. Good pick. Number seven. Okay, I wanted to see the love scenes. I wanted to see Nicole Kidman in the love scenes. She really doesn't do many nude scenes in the movie. You had a husband and wife playing a husband and wife. And as the director said, I think there's real problems in this marriage. Because I couldn't get them to do believable love scenes, and of course, then shortly thereafter, uh, Kidman and Cruz uh, broke up. Eyes Wide Shut had a lot of buzz around it while it was being made, and it may be one of the ten worst movies ever.
1: Really? Okay. Now I'm gonna here. I'm gonna disagree with you because I, I like that movie a lot. I find it fascinating. Uh, They shot that movie. The shoot was well over a year. Stanley Kubrick uh, worked the heck out of those two. It was a tough shoot. They shot it on a lot of sound stages, which uh, mirrored for New York. But I I found Tom Cruise's character and his journey in the movie fascinating. Uh, And and, and I know it's a polarizing movie, but you take one end of the spectrum, which I respect. I take the other. I, I actually like that movie a lot.
0: I think the, I think the movie the, the story, the characters are great. Yeah. I just could never get over the fact that Kidman and Cruz could not play a believable couple even though okay. they were Fair a, point. a couple..
1: Fair point.
0: Number six, I wanted this movie to do well because I was a huge fan of Leah Thompson. and it is one of the top five worst movies of all time. And it is Howard the Duck, but I wanted that movie to do well because I really wanted to see her doing more work, and we saw a lot less of her after Howard the Duck.
1: And that can and that can happen sometimes. You know, it's interesting because that was a George Lucas movie, and you know what equated uh, in that time period of a bomb is very different than a bomb now. Uh, that that movie was almost projected to be a bomb. The, the, the critics gunned. For, it was based, I guess, on a, on a comic. It uh, didn't translate well to, to screen. I mean, the jokes fell flat. Uh, I get it's not a very good movie, but uh, in those days, when the critics gunned for a film, they really gunned for it, and they pretty much tore this down from the minute uh, it it, op- it opened. And you, Movies usually didn't recover from that kind of critical uh, ro- roasting, and, and this one uh, did not. So that's your 10-6, through 6,
0: correct? That's, that's correct.
1: Very good. So now we'll bounce into a five through one, one at a time. I'll do five, you do five. My five is, uh, this is interesting because I like 95% of this, but the last uh, half hour the last episode was a very bad, disappointing moment for me. Dexter, New Blood. I love Meet some Dexter. I think it's one of the greatest shows of all time. I think the character played by Michael C. Hall is iconic. Nobody could play Dexter better. So they tried to write the ship uh, right or wrong of the way the original series concluded on Showtime because people were disappointed in that ending now while that wasn't a great ending I was somewhat okay with it now this movie this show takes Dexter to, from the warm weather of Miami to Iron Lake New York I loved the setting I loved the new characters I loved everything about this I thought it was creatively really well done I think it was 10 episodes Nine episodes, I'm, I'm all in. Nine and a half episodes, I'm all in. And then, for whatever reason, in the last half hour, the last episode of Dex New Blood, the showrunners decide that, hey, Dexter, a character that the entire audience that follows this character has been rooting for the whole time and loves, is really a villain. And they actually kill him off in the last five minutes. And then they have Dexter do something, which is to kill an innocent character in the last half hour, something that his character would not do. And it just was head-scratching, perplexing. Infuriating would be the operative word. I was absolutely, can infuriated in the last half hour of this last episode because I thought they did a great job of bringing the character back. I love the storyline, the setting, everything about Dexter New Blood. But that last half hour... They made creative decisions that were blasphemous, in my opinion, and the countless millions who love Dexter, and it really, to this day, bothers the heck out of me what they did. So Dexter New Blood, last half hour of the series, uh, very, very disappointing for me, number five.
0: Okay, I'm going to take the movie version of the musical Les Miserables, and okay. I'm going to take it because I want you to contrast it with the Steven Spielberg version of West Side Story. What didn't West Side Story have other than a cameo, basically, by Rita Moreno? It didn't have big Hollywood names. It cast people for their ethnicity and their musical talent. Mm-hmm. Les Mis could have been the thing that saved the movie musical. And I really wanted to see the movie musical make a comeback. And I thought there was a chance, you know. Phantom of the Opera was a little bit disappointing, but Les Mis had the chance to really knock it out of the park as a movie musical. And the second biggest character in Les Mis, second most important casting decision, Hugh Jackman is in fact a Broadway musical actor. He's got experience, so I can't I can't complain about that. There is no universe in which you cast Russell Crowe as Javert. And I think that and some of the other casting decisions, I think if they had used some of the people who were available from Broadway who still had not aged out of roles, they could have made that movie a lot better as a musical because I think what we're doing these days is we make our movie musicals as blockbuster movies and we ignore the music. Of course, we started that with the absolutely stupid decision of Madonna in Evita, even though she was... Very good in that role. She's not a Vita. But, uh right. I, you know, that's, that's the one. My, my number five is Lay Mis could have been a great movie, great comeback for the movie musical, but they made some silly casting decisions. Most importantly, Russell Crowe. I got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with a lot of that. I didn't think it was a terrible movie. I mean,
1: Anne Hathaway did win an Oscar for singing one song, and, and she, she was good singing that one song, but... uh yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the dichotomy of, of decision-making of do we go with big-name actors and try to get more people into the theater, or do we try to make a really good movie and uh, get people involved based on the merit of the entertainment value of the final product. Good good discussion. Good pick, Kent. Number four for me, uh, Independence Day 2. Now, me and Mike have talked about this movie on the show before. Uh, I just think this was so ill-advised. Uh, I, I love Independence Day. I think it's one of the best popcorn movies ever made. Will Smith decides not to come back for the sequel, but they do get Jeff Goldblum and some of the other characters. But when I'm watching on screen in the first 15 minutes, we're okay. And then you see that Vivica Fox has gone from a stripper in the original film to a nurse in this one. You know the writing is off the wall. Roland Emmerich did not have enough ideas to do this sequel, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, leads the way, but it's not as effective nearly as the original. And he doesn't even have any screen scenes on screen with Judd Hirsch, who plays his father, who their dynamic was so entertaining in the original film. This movie gets worse and worse by the minute. Uh, it is ill-advised, badly made, uh horrible scripted sequel, which Taunus is, I think, the original. More for Mike than than for me, we've discussed this, but this is a terrible sequel and a massive disappointment. I was so disappointed watching this movie. Uh, So this is my number four.
0: My number four is The Demise, and we talked about this recently, The Demise of a Great Series because two actors kept screwing around the series, couldn't even produce shows. It had the possibility of being a long-running classic of television, and that is the way in which the two stars killed the movie, the TV show Blue Moon. What show? Moonlighting. Sorry, Moonlighting. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I mean that's always a disappointment when uh, when when real life personalities hurt to create decisions to show. I mean that's not the first time that's happened, but I, I completely get. Uh, what you're saying. My number three uh, is not the movie itself, because the movie itself uh, I think is is a, a a solid movie, not as good as the the previous ones that came before it. But the opening set, uh, the opening pre credit sequence in Alien Three to me is one of the most talked about disappointing things in the history of film, where they take the beloved characters that you follow through Aliens, James Cameron's Aliens, one of the greatest sci fi action movies ever produced, and they kill off the little girl Newt and uh the the uh the, the character of Hicks uh played by Michael Bean off screen to set up the storyline of Alien three is one of the most ill devised, depressing, uh just horrible, disappointing decisions in the history of genre filmmaking. So my number three is that decision by David Fincher, not the movie itself, but the decision to set up the movie by killing off these fan favorites from the *Aliens*? Uh, to me, to this day, is still a massive disappointment. So that's my number three, Ken.
0: My number three. I think all of us, as we the first time we saw the movie *Casablanca*, we expected Humphrey to go off with Ilsa, right? We expected Rick and Ilsa end up end up together, and they don't and we accept that because they set up the sequel by him and louie walking off into the the moonlight saying hey this is going to be the start of a beautiful friendship we expected a casablanca sequel they actually considered one it wasn't made my one of my biggest regrets is that there was never a casablanca 2 to further develop the story of rick and th- and his buddy uh, Louie, and also maybe tell us what Rick had done in his past so he couldn't go back to the United States. So mine's something that didn't happen, but that was the, you know, my disappointment. My number three was the movie Casablanca 2 that never happened.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, back in those days, they didn't really, they sort of frowned on sequelitis, and you didn't see that as much. I mean, it sort of started... uh uh, I, I guess, you know, Bonita Plantez, which is a sequel to Plantez, that sort of started a, more, a little bit more of a sequelized trend in, in Hollywood, but uh, when Casablanca was released, you didn't see uh, sequels to movies like that. That's a, actually an interesting pick. My number two uh, disappointment, uh, Jaws The Revenge from 1987. Jaws is easily one of the greatest movies ever made. Jaws 2, I think a very good sequel. Joy uh, 3D, uh, mediocre and disappointing at best, but Jaws: The Revenge is one of the most perplexing uh, movies ever greenlit by a studio. How a studio uh, would say, okay, let's spend $50 million on the idea of a shark having a personal vendetta against a character played by Lorraine Gary, the, the wife of, of Sheriff Brody, uh, uh, in this film, swimming from Cape Cod to the Bahamas for personal revenge. And saying that the audience is going to buy that idea, hook, line, and sinker. Michael Keane had some merit as a character, a hoagie, but Lorraine Gary cannot carry a film. She was married to the studio head, and uh, I just thought this project, for the most part, was embarrassing. The cardboard shock looked horrible. Joseph Sargent, a really good director who did Taking a Pelham 123, was clearly in over his head, had no idea how to direct this type of a film. Uh, there was actually a sign, Ken at the box office in 1987, at the box office and said, uh, we allow no refunds.
0: Right, i mean, I'd never seen that.
1: i never seen that before because people were so, uh, quote-unquote, pissed off when they watched this movie because they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Uh, one of the most ill-advised, uh, head-scratching, uh, in a bad way, sequels, a massive disappointment, Jaws of Revenge, back in 87. That is my number
0: two. My number two is Godfather 3, and it's... Really? Okay. But, but they tell me? Godfather, because I mean, I I thought the plot, I thought the whole story of it was kind of unnecessary, getting them involved in the whole Vatican banking scandal and all that. I think Godfather Three should have been made ten years earlier, or Probably. it should have focused on the patch, the passing of the torch from Michael to Andy Garcia, and the struggles of the. Family to exist in the new world of organized crime, and I think it could have been a great movie. But I think because they waited so long to make it, and they really had a very non-compelling story, because it was no longer really just about the family. Uh, I, Godfather Three was a movie that should have been made earlier or made with a different plot. I, you know, I, I can't watch, I can't watch the third part of the trilogy.
1: I talk about this movie a lot. It's not Godfather 1 and 2. I get it. And I do agree with you that some of the plot points at the Vatican were not interesting. Those take place mostly in the second half. But I do think Andy Garcia is massive juice in this movie. And he has he's, he's outstanding in this film. And I love watching his scenes. There's a lot of this that I like. Some of it that I don't. It's somewhat of a mixed bag that I do give a marginal thumbs up. Believe it or not, Ken... In 1990, Godfather 3 still was nominated for one of the five best pitchers uh, category. It was nominated for the best picture Oscar. Uh, it has issues. The casting of, uh, of, of Sophia Coppola uh, was an issue. She was not a trained actress. Uh, very inexperienced, and that showed. But there's a lot of good in this movie, so I don't put it as a massive disappointment. But I know uh, others do i don't uh I, I would still give it a marginal thumbs and up and the thing is if you, if you if you'd okay. done
0: if you'd done it right garcia yeah. would have grown in that you would have had him grow in that movie it would have set you up for him as the godfather four
1: probably i agree i just think uh coppola was fixated on the michael corleone character and that's why that did not uh happened my number one is is not a movie or tv show in general but it's just a thought my biggest disappointment uh is to me and i'm still completely bummed on it is the way studios reacted to to covid and and the the way they turned their complete back on theater owners and went full-blown with a streaming model when theater owners were at a uh at a, at a stage where they were in trouble. And I just felt that after a 100 years plus of doing business, making multi-millions of dollars together, having a very good marriage of making movies, releasing them theatrically, that once COVID hit, uh, it became an opportunity, which was to me completely un-American, unpatriotic to say the least. Uh, to basically say to the theaters, well, too bad, uh, we're going streaming. You're on your own. Uh, you're bleeding. Here's no tourniquet. And I just, to this day, it sticks in my craw as being. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's unpatriotic. And in this country was in trouble. Uh, and 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 movie going was a huge part of our culture. I get why people didn't go to the movies for a while, but the but the studios could have treated. the the theaters so much better uh, and and formed a a bond and a way to get out of that together. Instead, they went for pure greed, which to me has tarnished a a lot of of what's been uh, positive in the industry as a whole. And I just don't like the way that was handled. So that that is my number one story.
0: Okay, and only in their defense for the first six months or so of it, of course they did it because movie theaters were closed. And then even after that, they had limited Uh, Seating, but I I understand you. My number one is also not a specific TV show, but it's the death of the TV variety show. I grew up with shows like Carol Burnett, and I really miss them, and we don't have anything like that today, and they were great family entertainment, and so I really regret that we don't see those anymore. That was my number one. That's a good
1: one. I I remember growing up, and I loved the Carol Burnett show. I I thought that was... Awesome, you know Harvey Korman, uh, Tim Tim Conway it was tremendous entertainment. They got massive ratings, but like everything else, you know culture things can uh, things change, and that 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 trend did change. But uh, this this was a fun show. I enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. Any other thoughts on your mind before nope, we wrap I it up? No, I think it's time to go.
0: All
1: right. Uh, thank you, Whoa, Whoa, and uh, thanks for the listening audience. Ken, you have a great weekend.
0: All right. Bye, Chuck. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening to
1: Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts.